Good morning again. Uh, we are continuing our study in Deuteronomy. Uh, the first chapters of Deuteronomy have been looking back. We've been talking about how they've looked back over the course of uh, Israelites' history uh, uh, in terms of the wandering of Israel through the wilderness. Um, and our text is focused on Israel. Today it looks back, but it's focusing more particularly on this person, Moses, their, their leader, the author of Deuteronomy, the one who's been leading the people, the spokesman of God. And he's uh, sharing his own bit of story uh, with those Israelites who are about to enter into the promised land. Uh, so with that, let's turn to the text, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. It's found for you in your bulletins, uh, it, it, Deuteronomy three twenty-three to 29. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such, such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of the people, of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you, will, that you shall see. So he remained in the valley opposite Beth Pure. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, uh, enlighten our hearts and open our minds uh, to understand your word, to see the glories of Christ, even from this ancient passage in Deuteronomy, that we might give you all praise and glory, for you are the great Savior. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three magic words. Three magic words that we learn at a very young age. Uh, The words that we think, that we believe, are meant to placate. Three words that are meant to alleviate and if maybe just ameliorate or whatever word eight you want to put in there. Uh, Any mess that we've made. Three words. I am sorry. We really do believe that those are, are sort of magic words. Think, think of children. Your child will complain once they've said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Maybe they say it three times three. That's like, that's like saying holy three times to the nth degree, right? Um, and yet you still punish the child. And they say something like, why am I still getting in trouble? I said the magic words. I'm sorry. It's not just a problem with kids, is it, really? It happens in marriages and friendships. We do or say something that upsets our spouse or our friend, and immediately we say, I'm sorry. And then we're incredulous when the person's still a little upset with us. They say, oh, I forgive you. I'm still dealing with this. We get upset with the fallout. And you say, well, but I said I was sorry, honey. Yeah, I know. There are often consequences to our actions, even though they may be mitigated by contrition. Uh, 
And sometimes these painful and costly consequences uh, take a real toll, a real, a, a real bite out of our life. They, they, they have a great effect. So it was with the generation that died in the wilderness. And we've already looked at that, how they sinned against God by not trusting him. And how they had to wander for 40 years. They were not permitted to enter the promised land on account of their sin. And so it was with Moses as well. Moses himself, the the mouthpiece of God, the prophet of God, the prophet par excellence, the one that all scripture looked back to as the greatest of prophets, was not permitted to go into the promised land. He was part of that generation, so to speak. Well, in our text this morning, Moses recounts how he himself could not enter the promised land, and he alludes to his sin, which we'll look at in just a moment. He alludes to his sin at Massa and Meribah, the place where the people of God had grumbled and complained against him and the Lord because of lack of water. We can read that account in Numbers 20, and we'll look at that in just a little bit. Um, And for Moses, because of that sin... There were great and costly consequences planned. And so this morning, I want us to think about the consequence of sin, particularly in the life of the believer, in order that we might see and that we might recognize the grace of God in his fatherly discipline. The grace of God in his fatherly discipline. In short, I just want us to know that there is grace in the discipline of the Lord. I want to look at this in three parts. First, I want us to do the first thing that we have to do, which is we have to see sin for what it is. It's rebellion against the Holy God. We spent quite a bit of time on this last week, but we still need to look at it because it's here in our text. Secondly, in discipline, the Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve. We have to recognize that. And then thirdly, in discipline, In the discipline of God, we see the salvation of God. In this one, we see salvation. So first things first, we must see sin for what it is, rebellion against the holy God. This morning we have a short text, but in order uh, to give us background, we have to examine a few other texts as well. So we'll be jumping around in, in God's word just a little bit. Um, Moses here in this text is referring to uh, his, this event that happened not too long before they're sitting on the plains of Moab, after they had left Kadesh Barnea. You remember, that's where they kind of wandered around for 40 years until a generation died. Well, Moses, his sister, they had, she, he had just buried his sister, Miriam. Um, and it was just after this, as they had, they had already left Kadesh Barnea, and they had entered into the wilderness of Zin, where they run into a problem. There's no water. It's a desert. This account is found for us in Numbers chapter 20. And in this account, the people are complaining and grumbling against Moses and against the Lord. They're doing the typical thing that the Israelites do, which is, why did you bring us out here, Lord, just to die? What what was your purpose in this? Um, Moses and Aaron take the complaint to the Lord And the Lord responds by telling them, take the staff, and that will be important to remember, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. 
So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Everything looks good. Everything up to this point was how Moses should function, how he should act in this setting. But verses 10 and following, Numbers 20 says this. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Hear now, you rebels. That's a great little line. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? He can sense his anger at this point. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock Seems okay so far. Maybe. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. And through them he showed himself holy. What? Where was Moses? Moses, what did he do wrong? At first blush, it's kind of hard for us to see what Moses' sin was. In fact, we might be tempted to think that the Lord is being a bit harsh. I had a teacher, um, uh, an English teacher at one point, um, who made us uh, take a poetry exam every single um, uh, week. And the thing about the poetry exam, it played to all my weaknesses, which was it had to be verbatim, Perfectly written out, including periods and, you know, whatever punctuation might be in a poem, which is often somewhat random to begin with. <laughs> had to be in the lines it was supposed to be in. If not, you, receive, you received a zero for that quiz. It wasn't marks off. It was zero. That was a little harsh, at least in my mind. And I didn't do too well on those exams. I probably failed more than I completed. And this seems a bit like that. Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. That was what the Lord had told him to do. The Lord had said, speak to the rock that the water might come out of it. But now he's not permitted to enter the promised land. Does the punishment fit the crime? Seems extreme. All right. Well, there is a bit more to this story than appears. Uh, This is not the first time that people had grumbled and complained for lack of water. The previous generation, the first generation that had now since died out, had once before grumbled and complained against Moses for this very same reason. It was way back when they had just left Egypt through the Red Sea and they were headed to Mount Sinai. And they were on their way and they came to the spot where they had no water and they grumbled and complained to, to, to Moses and they were ready to stone Moses. It wasn't just like they got angry and they picked up a rock. It was, you're under judgment, Moses, and by extension, Lord, for bringing us up out here to die. And at that time, the Lord responded by telling Moses to grab his staff. Told him both times, right? Grab your staff. Now, just as, uh, as an important symbolic instrument, this, is, this staff um, was very significant in the life of Israel. 
It was the same staff with which Moses had struck the Nile and turned it to blood in Egypt and had performed all the other wonders in Egypt that brought judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. It was the same staff that Moses used to divide the Red Sea and then again to swallow the sea, to swallow Pharaoh and his army up in the sea. It was the same staff that Moses stood with Aaron uh, holding his arm at the defeat of the Amalekites. As they were judging the Amalekites at that time. This staff re- represented the authority and the judgment of God. So Moses was instructed to take his staff. Not only that, but he said, take all the elders with you and come outside the camp and come over here. And if you're Israel and you've seen the power of that staff in the hands of Moses with all of Israel standing by and the glory cloud with Moses, as Israel, you think, "Uh uh-oh, we're about to be judged. We're about to see the judgment of God at hand. But instead, God told Moses to stand before him and strike the rock upon which that glory cloud that went by day and night before the Israelites. God told Moses, the Lord said to Moses, strike the rock on which I am present on. Strike into my very presence. In other words. And water came out. Moses struck the rock. So instead of judging Israel, the Lord himself was judged in that sense. That rod of Moses judged the Lord in the place of Israel that deserved judgment. Do you see the picture that, was, that the Lord was trying to paint? Fast forward. We're jumping around. That's back in Exodus. Now we're back to the second generation of Israelites. Numbers 20. Moses, staff in hand, is told not to strike the rock, but to speak to it. What does Moses do? He strikes twice. Why the difference? Why did God care how it was done as long as the people got their water? Well, firstly, Moses simply disobeyed. He was instructed not to strike, and he struck. So on one sense... It was disobedience to God. Secondly, God in both places, they were both called Massa and Meribah, by the way. They were both called the place of grumbling and complaining, what those words were mean. Both places, both times. Both were the Israelites in the wilderness, both separate generations doing the same exact thing. God, in both places, was painting a picture. He was teaching the people something about himself, something about the nature of rebellion and sin and what it deserved, and something about his redemptive love. And Moses marred the picture. He effaced the picture that the Lord was trying to paint. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that Jesus is the rock. The rock was meant to picture Christ. Corinthians 10, uh, for, uh, did I say 2 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 10 says this For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. 
that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank from the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You see that? The rock was Christ. Moses' sin, what was going on? Moses thought he knew better. Or he didn't trust that one strike against the rock those many years ago was enough. He didn't think it was enough judgment. He was angry with the Israelites. So not only does he strike it once, but he strikes it twice. Sure, the mercy of God will come in the water, but I am angry, Moses said, and I want to judge. This glorious picture of the once for all judgment of Christ, once for all judgment against Christ on our behalf, this rock that was struck once was to be a sufficient picture to picture the work that Christ does, the once for all punishment for sin, that after Christ is struck down, there's no more judgment, that from him come waters of life for all who ask. Moses didn't understand that God was not like him, that he was holy. That he was completely other, completely wise, completely just, and completely merciful. Moses' sin was the same as those who said that God could not deliver the land of promise. Lord, your judgments are not enough. Moses, God, I'm taking your place as judge right now because your idea of judgment is not my idea of judgment. How is that any different than saying, Lord, you're not strong enough to deliver us into the land. You see the same exact sin Moses had. When we unfold the sin and parse it out like this, we begin to recognize just how rebellious his act was. On the surface, it seemed minor. But his sin exposed the pride and arrogance of Moses. And it exposed his lack of faith and trust. In God. And isn't this the way of all of our sin? Isn't this the nature of sin? We think, what's the big deal? It's not like I'm murdering somebody. Right? We say that in our heads, in our hearts. What's the big deal? But the thing is, we fail to recognize how our sin at its very root is a, is a rejection of God as Lord. It's full of pride, rebellion, lack of faith in God. And as we talked about last week, all of it deserves the judgment of God. But the Lord is a merciful God. And in his fatherly discipline, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. This is my second point. Don't misunderstand me on this point. Last week we talked about God being holy and just and punishing sin and and death is the just dessert for our sin. And this is what he promised in Adam. If you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die eternal death. Hell. 
the grave. That's the true end of all rebellion. But in Christ, we are promised salvation. Though the grave remains this side of Christ's return, Christ has satisfied hell's fury, and those who trust in him have hope of eternal life. This is the good news, right? That, that, that Christ has taken what we deserve, that we might have eternal life. And yet, our Heavenly Father disciplines us. Disciplines us. Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land. Maybe it seems harsh. After all, Moses had been faithful in leading this grumbling, complaining, stiff-necked people for more than 40 years through every imaginable terror. He was known by God. He had seen the backside of God's glory. He talked with God like a man talks face-to-face with another man. He was the prophet of God par excellence. He was the one who glowed as he came down the mountain out of the cloud. He was one who was, who, who was the greatest of all the prophets. Maybe the greatest of all Old Testament characters. He's only one of two people who stood by Christ at the transfiguration. That glorious moment. That glorious vision. What a man. And now he is on the precipice of entering this land and he has stopped short. And I don't doubt that for Moses, this discipline of the Lord felt like death. Moses. And in every way, it's a godly plea. He says, I pleaded with the Lord at the time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please, let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, the good hill country, and Lebanon. He pleaded like David did when he was in sackcloth and ashes before the Lord pleading for the life of his son. Do you remember that story? And in both cases, the Lord did not grant that petition. In fact, here the Lord said, do not ask again. It's like death for Moses. Have you ever been at a place where the the discipline, maybe it's the natural consequences of your sin, feel like death as you reap what you've sowed? In this life. But it's really important. And this is the most important thing. The discipline of the Lord. The discipline. The fatherly discipline of the Lord. Is not punitive. It's not punitive. In other words. It's, it's, it's not. Well you deserve ten lashes for doing this. Like they, I'm reading these books. Uh, that. Uh, Mr. Fisher gave me about the Royal Navy and, um, you know, the way they handled discipline was you're drunk, you get 10 lashes or 12 lashes or 24 lashes. Uh, It seems very harsh, but in the 19th century in the Royal Navy, this was normal. Um, It's punitive. You deserve this because here's the reality. We never get what we deserve, do we? For our sin. Never do. It's not punitive. Hear these words. 
Hear these words from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated... Then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, a father, by very virtue of his call, disciplines. Fathers, discipline your children. That's not the point right now, though. He goes on to say this. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Fathers, be careful how you discipline. (laughs) Sometimes what we think is best isn't best. But the Lord, on the other hand, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline of our Heavenly Father is meant to help. It is a salve, a medicine meant to drive us to Christ and to grow us in obedience. But how, you ask, Does not permitting Moses to enter the promised land help him or anyone else for that matter? How is it not punitive? It seems like, well, you're not going there because you did this. How is it discipline? How is it good? I think we have to wrestle with that. This brings me to my final point. In discipline, we see the salvation of God. In discipline, we see the salvation of God. Firstly... His discipline, this discipline of Moses, humbled Moses. It reminded him that God alone has the authority to judge and judge in the way he sees fit. Moses, you're not the judge. This discipline reminds him, humbles him, puts him in a place where God alone stands as the holy judge of his people. Secondly, this discipline of Moses humbled Israel. It made them realize that even the most holy and righteous among them was not fit to enter the promised land. Remember, the Israelites are about to enter the promised land and Moses is their leader. And Moses is saying, I'm a sinner too. I'm a sinner too. Thirdly, it was a protection and a hedge for Moses and Israel. It kept them from going farther down and farther into their sin. It helped them turn in repentance and faith. When they start to realize the effects of their sin, that they're no longer allowed to enter the promised land, it reminds them, oh Lord, have mercy on me. Turn me from my ways. It pushed them to repentance and faith. Fourthly, and maybe this is maybe the, one of the more amazing pictures here, it pointed Moses and the people beyond the physical 
land. How easy would it have been for all of Israel to think that Canaan itself was the end-all, be-all? Right? I think that's how Moses felt. He wanted the land so bad. Lord, let me into it. And, and in the Lord's way, he's saying, Moses, Moses, this isn't the end-all, be-all. This isn't it. This is a picture. Moses, I wonder, as God permitted him to go up to Pisgah and look over every direction from the heights of Pisgah and look out and say, there's the land. <laughs> look how good it is. And I wonder if Moses sat there looking at the land. I'm sure he was weeping. Oh, it looks so good, Lord. But even as he describes God earlier, he said, But Lord, my God, you have not begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. How much greater will glory be than this? See how the discipline affects him? Strips away the idols, starts to peel away the layers and say, what is most significant? Not the land. The glory of God. Friends, Moses tasted glory. We know this for sure, for certain. He stood next to Jesus at the transfiguration when they all went up and Jesus was transfigured into the glorious picture of what it was to be in in glory. And and, and Peter and the other disciples who were with him looked and saw Jesus, but they also saw two others. Elijah and Moses there before him, tasting the glory, the promised rest of God in glory. Moses tasted it. Friends, the discipline of the Lord is painful. As a matter of fact, all discipline is painful, right, kids? Is discipline painful? Yeah. I I know this is a common statement. Parents always say that it hurts them more than you. Kids, do you buy that? I don't know if I bought it. As a parent, I do now. As a kid, I couldn't see it. Discipline is painful. It's meant to strip off that which is inhibiting us from seeing God and Christ more clearly. Discipline is the loving kindness of our Heavenly Father who does not allow us to continue to destroy ourselves by our sin. It's His love towards us, His protection towards us. And it is through this discipline of God that we begin to marvel and wonder at the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The text ends with Moses being instructed to charge Joshua to lead the people. He says, charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him for he shall go over at the head of the the people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. Moses Moses was a man of God, the greatest of all the prophets. Uh, And as we have mentioned already, and one who talked with God as a man talks to another face to face. He was the mediator between God and Israel. But he was not the greatest prophet. He wasn't. Through this discipline, Moses, the people of Israel, and all of us here, Realize there's a need of a greater prophet, a greater mediator, one who could lead his people safely 
to the promised land. Joshua is charged here to do that. And Joshua, whose name means Savior, indeed leads the people into the land and conquers the cities. Brings them into the promised land. But even Joshua was insufficient as a savior. After Joshua was gone, the land still had many Canaanites in it. And the people of God would eventually follow their ways. And the Lord would continually discipline the people throughout the period of judges, throughout the period of kings, even into the period of the exile. And each discipline would remind them, we need a greater prophet than Moses. And a greater Savior than Joshua. And that was the point. Friends, we need Jesus. We need the rock of salvation, the one who would be the prophet par excellence. Indeed, the eternal logos, the great mediator between God and us. The great Savior who goes and conquers his and our enemies who brings us, ushers us, leads us into the promised glory of God. The rest. Friends, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. May God, through it, show you more clearly the love, the power, and the grace of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we don't like discipline. We don't like uh, your chastisement. And sometimes, Lord, we, we even cry out that it's wrong. And yet, Lord, you mean only good to us. That you love us. It's your mercy to us. Help us to see your mercy. Even in the midst of our sin and our rebellion, help us to see your mercy and grace and that we have a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ, one who is able to usher us, to bring us home to glory. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his ministry to us. Thank you for your grace in him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.